Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 273. You may remember me, my name is Coraline, and I'm very, very happy to be with y'all today and to be with my friend, Jamie Hampton. Thanks, Coraline. I'm also excited to introduce my good friend, Aaron Aldrich, and it's our first time co-hosting together, so I'm excited about that too. Oh, hey, it's me, Aaron Aldrich. I'm also excited. I'm, I'm so excited to host with all these people, and I will introduce you to Chelsea. Hi, folks. I'm Chelsea Troy, and I am pleased to introduce Mandy Moore. Hey, everybody. It's Mandy, and today I'm here with one of my favorite people. It's Carrie Miller. And you may know Carrie as an engineer, a glass artist, a public speaker, a motorcyclist, and a lackwit gadabout based in the Pacific Northwest. Generally, she's on an epic adventure on her motorcycle somewhere in North America. Will she meet Sasquatch? That's what I want to know. And that's why she's here today, because we're not going to talk about tech or code today. We're going to catch up with Carrie. If you're not following Carrie on these epic adventures, you need to be, because I live vicariously through her all the time, and you need to, too. Carrie is a prime example of living your best life. So without further ado, Carrie... How are you? Oh my gosh, with the intro like that, how can I be anything but amazing today? Can I just hire you, Mandy, just to like call me every morning and like tell me how exciting I am? Absolutely. <laughs> no, uh, I'm doing really, really well. It, the sun actually came out today in the Pacific Northwest. I've been telling people lately that uh, if you want to know what living in Seattle is like, first go stand in the shower for about four months <laughs> and then get back to me. So uh, to have a sun break and it's... 53 outside. It's amazing. 53 does sound amazing. It's been like so far below freezing for so long here that I've lost track. I just, every once in a while I go outside and it's like 30 and I'm like, oh, this is nice. <laughs> Are we going to ask Carrie the superpower question? Because I feel like she's come on and answered it like a bunch of times already. <laughs> we could ask her about Sasquatch instead. I mean, I thought her superpowers were having epically awesome adventures, but maybe she has a different answer. Well, in the context of this conversation, I think that my superpower is being able to sit on a motorcycle for ridiculously long amounts of time. Carrie, would you say you have an iron butt? Is that is that uh, is that what you call that? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, of course, the joke being right that I belong to um, a group called the Iron Butt Association, which is dedicated to uh, promoting the safe and sane practice of long-distance endurance motorcycle riding. So the only requirement to join, besides having the defective gene that makes you want to sit on a motorcycle for hours and hours on end, is to be able to ride a 1,000 miles on a motorcycle in 24 hours, which once you do it once, you very quickly decide if you ever want to do it again. And if you do decide you want to do it again, you are one of the, one of the in-group. What's a reference point for 1,000 miles? That's a number that I only know conceptually. Um, let's see. It is a thousand miles, almost exactly, from Seattle to Anaheim to the front door of Disneyland. Um, it's a eleven hundred miles from Boston to Jacksonville, Florida. Oh wow! It's two thousand miles from my house in Seattle to Chicago. What made you feel like you wanted to sit on a motorcycle for that long? I don't really have a short answer for that, but I'll give you an honest answer. I mean, the short answer is the jokey one, right? To say, oh, I've got a defective gene, ha, ha, ha. But um, when I was in, uh, I grew up um, in the country and had like a lot of, um, a lot of struggles uh, as a teenager. And the way that I escaped from that was to go get in my car 
and drive around the back roads of New England, right? Dirt roads, finding old farmsteads and farm fields and abandoned logging roads. And that gave me this real sort of sense of freedom. When I moved out to Pacific Northwest, no real friends, no family out here. I spent a lot of time in my car exploring Pacific Northwest. And I had a lot of those same those same vibes, right, of uh, being by myself and listening to my good music and just driving around late nights. And when I got into motorcycling, I, do, I rediscovered that sort of joy of being by myself and exploring things and seeing new things. And if I wasn't seeing something new, I was seeing how it had changed this week or since last month or since last year, since I'd been through a particular region. And my launch this motorcycling is basically an extension of that. It's this sort of urge to travel, a desire to be by myself, uh, under my own control, my own power, and to learn and discover new stories um, that I'm not learning just by sitting in my apartment all day. Um, I, I work from home. I, I worked remotely for eight or nine years now. So anytime I get to leave the apartment is kind of a joy and an adventure. But doing so for these long extended periods of time just lets me see more of the world and expand my own story and learn the story of others as I travel. Being a, a single solo lady on a motorcycle, like I'm instantly like the object of interest wherever I stop. Um, and it doesn't help that I have rainbow stickers and all sorts of stuff all over my bikes. My motorcycle helmets are crazy pink and rainbow reflective and got unicorn horns and things all over my bike. So people see me as being like super approachable. Um, so every time I stop for gas or to get a burger or a soda or something, people come up to me and they want to tell me their stories about, you know, for, it's usually about the motorcycle, right? They're like really interested about like, it. It's uh, uh, usually uh, middle-aged and older men come up to me to say, oh, I had a motorcycle when I was in college. And then I got married and had a kid. You can kind of see them deflate a little bit. Or I've had lots of kids come up because it's covered with stickers. And a lot of the stickers, um, they're all kind of at a kid eye level. They see them and they get really excited. They want to come over and talk to me. And with the rainbow bandanas and everything, um, I, think, I think I look safe as a biker. You know, I'm not dressed in black and skulls. And so uh, people see me as approachable. And they want to come up and talk. So there's a lot of those sort of great interactions uh, that I get to have with people along the way. And uh, Carrie, you talked about, you said at the beginning when you were driving around the Pacific Northwest, you were listening to your good music. Uh, do you also listen to music on the motorcycle? And some of those have like fancy speakers in the, in the helmet and all that sort of stuff. Or do you just go quiet and, and just, listen, just listen to the road? Honestly, I mean, over the course of a day, uh, because I will ride 18, 20 hours a day if you, if you just let me go. Um, and if I'm trying to like make distance, I'll do that. It, it's kind of a mix, but for the most part, I actually do listen to something. Um, the last few years, I've really kind of embraced and, and tried to understand and integrate into my personal identity, having ADHD and how, how does that manifest for me? And I found that if I'm riding my motorcycle and I'm not listening to something, my mind wanders. But weirdly, like if I'm listening to something, then I'm paying attention and focused, controlling the motorcycle and being safe and, and whatnot, which seems paradoxical, but like, that's just how my brain works. So yeah, I pretty much always have something going. Until recently, I had a Spotify playlist with about 1800 songs on it that was rotating through. I tried to do audiobooks and podcasts, but that's a little that's a little tricky uh, with all the wind noise and whatnot. I'm trying to protect my hearing. Other than that, I also listen to a lot of FM radio, which is great. So like I have opinions on country music now, which I never thought I was going to have opinions on that before. Yes, country music is great. It's, it's all over even in Seattle, like we have country music bars and whatnot, but like, you don't just like walk down the street in Seattle and hear country music. You got to kind of seek it out. And so I haven't been exposed to it. 
So uh, yeah, I listen to a lot of FM country as I uh, cross uh, the vast plains of America. And I've also used that to discover a lot of um, the sort of rebirth that's happened in the last decade of community radio. Um, a lot of uh, small communities have their own low power, super local FM radio. That you can only pick up for like 20 miles at a stretch. So if I'm passing through a town and I see a sign for like, you know, KABC or whatever it is, you know, for like some small town, I immediately tune to it. And it's always like, you know, somebody who's just like, they're not a trained professional. They never went to broadcasting school. They don't have that trained radio voice. You know, they're just talking about like, you know, sheep that got out or, you know, here's a, a problem with the town water supply or, or whatever it is. What, what local road is closed? And that's just an amazing way to sort of like, even as I'm passing through a place that I'm not stopping, I kind of get a little bit of a flavor for that. I was just thinking that FM radios generally got to give you more of a flavor for the local area that you're at, right? Like, I always thought of that as the frustration of FM radio traveling. Like, all my radio stations keep changing. I don't know where to tune. Uh, but at the same time, that's pretty cool. Like, I love that as a positive of, like, what do they listen to over here? What do they listen to over in this part of the country? Like, I would imagine even just, like, where different musical genres are on the dial would probably shift around. Well, maybe not. Maybe that's just my <laughs> coming up with things, but... Yeah, I mean, there, you you do learn that there are there are some patterns. Like all of the all of the NPR stations, they're all down in the eight hundreds, and also a lot of the the religious radio. And like the, the top end of the dial seems to be like a lot of rock. Like the big rock stations seem like one hundred seven, whatever the end or, or something. <laughs> yeah, the, the best ones though are the ones that um, have local commercials because um, you get you get a lot of, like the same like you know law firms and drugs that I don't know if I have like, even the condition, but I should really talk to my doctor or see if it's right for me. But then you'll get like local car places or um, I, I got one when I was down south somewhere in Louisiana and it was for a uh, combination airboat rental and barbecue joint. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And the guy had this amazing uh, regional accent, which, you know, I never hear up here in the Northwest. Uh, we have our own accent, but like, you know, I got a little taste of this real Southern accent. And it was just, it was the owner. It was clearly the owner just reading a little script that he wrote come on down and rent a jet boat and bring your dog and your dog can go on it. And then you, you, you will we'll have barbecue waiting for you when you get off the dock. And everything. I'm like, I'm sold. Like I'm going to turn around and go, go see this guy right now. This is amazing. And I actually have that business. I, I keep a map of every interesting place I hear about as I travel. And I put a pin there and I'm like, someday I'm going to be coming back by this place and I'm going to be hungry for lunch. And I'm going to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop here. So advertising works, I guess is what I'm saying. Will you share that map with us? <laughs> <laughs> I really should. I really should. It, it's a lot of fun, actually. Because, um, you know, you, you read these websites or you like, you know, uh, roadside attractions or you hear about like some abandoned theme park or something. And it's like, that's kind of a cool thing, right? You read the article and, and you move on your day. But like, I add it to I add it to my maps and those maps are sort of my GPS unit. So as I'm riding, I've got this little screen in front of me. And if I see a little pin appearing on the map in front of me, I can say, oh, there's a, yeah, this old uh, water park over here, or, oh, there's that uh, resort over there that I always wanted to see, or a particular weird statue, or the birthplace of James Kirk, or whatever it is, right? So I don't have to remember it, the computer can do it for me. I was going to ask if you go to things like the world's largest ball of twine, and like- Every time. Okay, cool. Every time. I'm glad that I understand you enough to know that you would do that. (laughs) Carrie, have you been in a mystery spot? Uh, I have been to Mystery Spot. What is Mystery Spot? I remember Mystery Spot is like, uh, it's like some kind of place where they say like gravity is out of whack and like 
everything feels sideways and you're super disoriented and they have this whole like this whole mythology around it and uh uh, I've never been myself, but I but I did uh, I did pretend that I'd been there and by putting a bumper sticker on my uh, on my car 15 years ago. <laughs> and there's this amazing uh, there's this amazing song called Mystery Spot Polka. I can't remember who did that, but yeah, I think that's how I that's how I learned about it. I will put that in the show notes. I will I will find Mystery Spot Polka. It is uh, it is incredible. So Carrie, what are some of the places, like coolest places you have visited? Can you give us like a top three rundown? And I really hope that Cracker Barrel is in that top three, Carrie. But which Cracker Barrel? Oh, Cracker Barrels are the same everywhere you go. I really believe there's only actually one Cracker Barrel, it's like the canonical Cracker Barrel, and it's uh, uh, multidimensional. So yeah, you like teleport into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, interestingly enough. I won't call this a danger, but one of the side effects of, of, of traveling as much as I have in the last four or five years is strange random flashbacks to stretches of road and you can't remember where they are. So, you know, we were just, you were just asking about this and I'm like, thinking about, okay, about two places I could talk about. And then I suddenly unbidden had this memory of a stretch of road. I can't remember where that is. I, I like, I don't even know what state that's in. Like it was an amazing piece of, of pavement that I really enjoyed riding. And in that moment, I had this amazing moment. And if I skip way ahead to the end of, of the conversation where I sum everything up and tell you why I ride or what I get out of doing this is that it's cemented for me this, this concept of the impermanence of everything. You know, because like if I'm having a, a great day on the bike, it's a beautiful afternoon, the temperature's perfect. It's not going to last, right? The sun's going to go down. The pavement's going to be bad. Traffic's going to pick up. It's going to start ringing. So I need to enjoy this moment, this curve, this hour, this half hour, this five minutes, whatever it is. And if something, conversely, right, if it's bad, right, if it's, if it's raining or it's dark or heck, if it's snowing, you know, it's like, this is not going to last. I will be, I'll go through this and everything will be great. But once every six weeks or so, I have, I make a, a really bad decision on the motorcycle, for instance. Like, I'm like, that rain's probably going to clear up. That's not going to be a rainstorm. Nah, this wind's going to die down. It'll be fine. I'll be riding through something that makes me just completely miserable. 110 degrees or, or sideways rain or whatever. And I think, yep, this is it. This is the moment. This is the thing that, that I'm going to be remembered for. This is the dumb thing that I did. But it never lasts. And I always survive. And I walk away with this just amazing memory and this amazing story about about that time I rode through a rainstorm or, you know, illegally parked my motorcycle in front of the Alamo just to get a photo. <laughs> Things like that that happen. Carrie, do you collect souvenirs of any kind from some of these travels or is it specifically photos? Do you post about them specifically anywhere? Maybe you do a whole bunch of things. I've certainly seen a number of your posts, but I guess I'm wondering, I'm imagining myself in these situations like collecting stickers or something like that or do you do you have things like that that you look for in these places one of the the neat things that i enjoy about traveling my motorcycle is that i can't i just simply don't can't i can't buy anything right? i just don't have any space for it my, my gear is all pretty pretty well packed uh, tightly so souvenirs are kind of out unless i'm willing to pay extra to ship them home so it's, it's kind of rare. Although I, I have occasionally gotten, if I know that like I'm going to be using a friend in a day or two, I'll stop and pick something up. And usually it's a food item that I haven't seen before. Um, in fact, if you, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see like I'm always posting about weird foods or energy drinks. 90% of the time, it's weird stuff I found in a, in a weird gas station on the side of the road, especially when it comes to energy drinks. 
And it's much more about having that experience uh, of a place at the end of the day. I don't take as many photos as I like, or I think that I should. Um, although certainly I do take more than, than I used to. I've been working on landscape photography with my iPhone. Because again, I can't travel. I, I choose not to travel with a full camera rig. So while well, I got my iPhone, like how can I, how can I take photos with that? That turns out to be much more about like composition and seeing a moment and grabbing it than like having the right lens or, you know, lighting conditions being just right or whatever. Ooh. So I'd be very interested to hear some of your tips for phone photography. Cause this is a thing, like we all have our phones on us and I imagine like if I just knew a little more about how to frame my photos, sometimes I could get something a lot better. Some of the basic tips are uh, just sort of like photography one-on-one, kind of like how do you compose a shot um, in terms of the rule of three where you, you kind of break it up. And you'll see like in, in phones, a lot of times you have the option to turn on like a grid. Over, so you're looking at like a grid. And that can kind of help you like understand like how much space something's going to take up in the final shot. You want to line up your horizon, for example. If you're, you know, if I'm taking a picture of say like a harbor, uh, I've been taking, taking a lot of photos of lighthouses for reasons I can get into later. Um, so I'm trying to take like really nice photos of lighthouses. You know, the sea kind of wants to be right around, the, take up the, the lower third of the shot, and then you've got two thirds is, is sort of sky. And it's, it's about how much, how much of the, the frame gets filled with different elements will sort of like psychologically suggest to the viewer what their importance is or how they relate to the person who's taking the photograph. Um, so just some, some basic rules around that. I try to do things where, especially when doing like landscape photography, because the iPhone lens is just horrible for this, right? It's, it's really meant to take photos of your friends at parties, you know, or your car in the driveway. It's not meant to take, you know, right? sweeping these vistas. But you can do some tricks. Like, actually, I found that like zooming in a little bit, um, not a lot, but just a little tiny bit kind of just brings it a little bit closer. Um, and the final result just feels a little, a little different. Um, and then if you also you continue to follow those rules of composition, you can get some good landscape. Putting something in the foreground is really great. So my motorcycles and a lot of my my, uh, my shots because of that, because it, it, it's, it gives some depth to the photo. And so it helps to not just be like, especially if you're doing like a wide open plane like you do, it's like, oh yes, here's like some bars of color. It's like, oh, now here's something to give me perspective and sort of like uh, humanize the scale of a landscape. So it's just little things like that. And that's all stuff that I've learned just because, you know, I'm just like a naturally curious person. So I'm like, well, how do I, how do I take better photos of that? And so I went off and did like four hours of research and, you know, audited a class on online somewhere. Have all or most of your travels been continental U.S. or have you ever gone on a, on a like a motorcycle trip on, a, on another continent or? Um, it depends. Is New Zealand a continent? Well, it's not in the continental U.S. So. <laughs> um, yes, I, I guess I should start closer to home, though. Um, North America, I've done. So I've done U.S., Mexico and Canada. Right when COVID hit, I was actually in Baja, California, down at the, the southern tip of the Tropic of Cancer uh, on my motorcycle. I rode there all the way from uh, Long Beach, California. And I've been up to Alaska through Canada uh, twice now. I'm sorry. I was going to tell a Carrie Alaska story, actually, because I was in Alaska oh, not too long ago. And I posted um, like a landscape photo uh, from like our rental car on Twitter. And I did not label where I was. And Carrie was like, where are you in Alaska? And then we were talking about this and she recommended that I eat fireweed ice cream, which I did. And it was wonderful. 
Oh, was it great? <laughs> it was great. And so I was going to suggest that your uh, superpower could be like recommendations. <laughs> oh, thank you. That, that's super flattering, actually. I, I sometimes think like, you know, when I finally, uh, when I finally get tired of, of tech, like I just want to be like a tour guide or something or write travel oh, yeah. novels or something. Yeah. I just like, I'm just like, I, I love being a hostess and I love like whenever like somebody's like, Oh, I'm traveling or I'm going here. I see somebody's like post photos from someplace I've been. I'm like, wait, here's this restaurant. You should go here and like, make sure you talk to this person and do this. And yeah. The a year after I got my first bike, no, not even a year. Oh my gosh, it was like five months after I got my first motorcycle. I went to New Zealand uh, to do, for a conference and said, "Well, the hassle in traveling to New Zealand is actually traveling to New Zealand, so I might as well take some time." So I took two weeks and rented a motorcycle and just like did a couple thousand kilometers all over the South Island in New Zealand. So those are the four countries I've ridden in. I was going to rent one. I've been to Berlin a few times and I thought, oh, I'll rent a, I'll rent a BMW when I'm in Germany. That'd be cool. I'm like ride around. But uh, unfortunately I got sick while I was in Germany the one time I was going to do that. So yeah, I stayed in my hotel room and felt bad. How different is motorcycle on the other side of the road in New Zealand? <laughs> I only, I only rode on the wrong side of the road twice. <laughs> The uh, the shop I rented from actually they rent to a lot of uh, a lot of Americans I guess <clears throat> so they put arrows on the on the on the the windscreen to say like you know drive pass you know to, to help remind us but it's funny because every single rental car down there has like our Amer- the left side of the car is the one that's completely trashed because <laughs> when you're riding we you start driving on the on the wrong side of the road or the left the side you're not used to. Now it's like your your entire concept as a driver of where the opposite side of the car is, is now completely inverted. And so it's like trying to do something with your left hand when you're right-handed. It's just like, how do left-handed people survive? Like, what are you doing? I had to, uh, uh, I was in South Africa a number of years ago, and uh, we drove out to this, uh, to this like wildlife preserve. And the only car I was able to rent um, that was not a stick shift, because I don't know how to <laughs> drive stick shift, was this giant club van. So not only did I had to drive on the wrong side of the road, but like I was in the largest vehicle I had ever driven, <laughs> had no idea like where the other side of the car might be. I was just terrified of exactly that the whole time, yeah. So you call it a club van, but all I can imagine, my first the image that popped in my, my brain was um, a party bus. Like, so imagine you driving around South Africa to party bus. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Very different, very different trip. I just want to bring it back to lighthouse pictures because as a native New Englander, I need to know why you're taking pictures of all these lighthouses. Well, as another native New Englander, <laughs> hi. Hi. How are you? Um, <laughs> no, so why am I taking photos of lighthouses? I am, uh, one of the things about the Iron Butt Association, which again is this group that dedicated to promoting this is not just um, the pure endurance of, can you ride a thousand miles in 24 hours? Can you ride 1500 miles in 24 hours? You know, what are the limits of, of, you know, safe endurance events? We also do a number of uh, collection style things. We call them tours. And so I'm doing a lighthouse tour. So you go to lighthouses and uh, I've got this little, little passport, like my lighthouse passport I got from the United States lighthouse society. When they're open, you can get a little rubber stamp in oh, your book neat. to prove that you were there. Uh, when they're not open, I take a photo of my motorcycle next to the next to the lighthouse, and uh, that's the proof that I've been there. 
and the challenge is um, I have to visit 60 in 12 months. Okay. And that's the bare minimum. And so there's, there's advancing levels of difficulty. And this is, this is their merit badges for adults. Really. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like 60 in 12 months, uh, I'm at 25 or 30 now and I've, I've scoured the West coast. So I'm going to also hit uh, the Gulf Coast and uh, the Atlantic next month, and I'm down there in Florida. There's other one, other challenges like go to 120 or 180 um, again over the course of different time periods. You have different difficulty levels. Um, I've also done one uh, which is visiting national parks because national parks have a similar passport stamp program where you can go get these sort of like time stamped little cancellations to say I was in like the Redwood National Forest or I was at. Um, Wounded Knee, or not Wounded Knee, uh, Little Bighorn, um, or Devil's Tower, or whatever. And the challenge there is to visit, say, uh, 50 of them, but now you have to do it in 25 different states. Um, of course, I've upped the ante, and we have um, the silver level, which is you you visit, you also have to combine that with visiting one park in Washington, California, Florida, and Maine, in addition to those 50 and 25 states. So I did two of those last year. And then uh, a year before that, I, I added Alaska just for fun, which is the, the gold or insanity level. So it's just it's just these like little different ways of like encouraging people to go out and travel and see more of the country on their, their motorcycle. You work from the road, right? Um, yeah, I do, actually. I would love to hear about how that works with such an aggressive travel schedule. That takes a lot of discipline and balance, which I am surprised I managed to pull off. Given how much, how much I, I can I can normally do it without adding the travel in. Usually, what I do is um, I I have days where I am in one place and days when I'm traveling. So, for example, um, on February 28th, I'm going to be heading out for two months on the road, and my first stop is going to be San Diego. So, I will take that weekend and ride down to San Diego, which again, uh, only 1,300 miles, so it's like that's a day. And I've rented a little place down at Ocean Beach, like a block from the shore. And uh, they have Wi-Fi in this little tiny one-bedroom studio. And I'll work there and I'll kind of explore San Diego. So I'll work all day. And the evenings I'll go ride around the hills or go up, you know, go up to Legoland or, you know, whatever I want to do in that part of the world. And then Friday night, Saturday, I'll hit the road again for a couple days. And because, and, and this is actually how I initially started traveling these long, long distances was trying to say like, okay, I really want to go to Austin, Texas, but it's going to take me four riding days or whatever to get to Austin, Texas. How do I, how do I manage to do that and still work from the road? So, well, two days away is Denver, Colorado. So why don't I go to Denver and I'll work there for a few days and then the next weekend, then I'll you know sort of skip on. So it's like setting up a series of base camps as if I was attacking Everest. So I can break up these big trips. But as I wanted to travel further and further distances overall, I had to actually physically travel uh, or do longer distances in the same amount of time. And so speeding isn't going to do that safely. And it actually really doesn't get you there that much faster in the end. So the only way to do that was to figure out how to ride longer, uh, more hours in the day, figure that out. Can you talk about these like motorcycle, like scavenger hunt things that you do? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, I assume you noticed the trophies on the, wall behind me. Yeah, so um, we, we these are competitive scavenger hunt style rallies. Uh, we call them rallies. A lot of people, when you, see, when you say motorcycle rally, they think about like Bike Week in Daytona or Sturgis out in South Dakota. That's none of this. So it's, uh, it is a scavenger hunt and there's a timer on it. So say 36 or 60 hours 
where the night before you get a list of here's all the different places that you could possibly go call them bonus locations. And at four in the morning, everyone's released and you're like, okay, go be back in a day and a half. And you go and you take photos of these different places to prove that you went there. And every place gets you a certain number of points. The harder it is to get there or the further away it is, the more points that you would get for going there. You might do combinations for um, visiting certain places, like visit three clown themed places and get the clown bonus or whatnot. Sort of like a pinball machine, if you will, where you, you score the right lights in combination, you get more points. Yeah, so it's a timed competitive thing to like who can gather the most amount of points because you can't visit all of them. They'll give you 80 or 100 places you could possibly go. You can't go to all of them in the time allotted. So can you construct a, an efficient route that is also one that you have the physical capability to travel in the allotted time and earn enough points to, to place well? They typically last uh, 36 hours is sort of like one level. Um, we have a few that do 60. Uh, I'm doing one this summer that is nine days long. So we'll be leaving Cheyenne, Wyoming. And four days later, we have to be in State College, Pennsylvania, where we'll all stop for like 10 hours. And then uh, we'll turn around and head back to Cheyenne. And I actually just put in my uh, application for um, the, the Olympics of the Iron Butt Association is uh, called the Iron Butt Rally which is an 11-day version of the sort of countrywide scavenger hunt wow. with locations all over North America and Canada. We, uh, yeah, we call it the sort of the Olympics. Uh, it happens every two years. You actually have to apply to be accepted to, to enter because otherwise you'd have a lot of folks that say, oh, I could do that. Um, and they don't really know what they're getting into. And it's a little bit unsafe if uh, you, you haven't done it before and you don't really understand what, what it takes to do. That's sort of like what's coming up on my horizon for those. And they're very competitive events, although it's, you know, in the end of the day, it's, it's made up internet points. Uh, there's no sponsorships. There's no recognition besides outside of this group of three or 400 similarly weirdo people who like riding their motorcycles long ways. But uh, no, I've had quite a bit of success competitively in that. And that just scratches all the right itches because it's, it's riding a motorcycle. Plus, I mean, like, it's basically a traveling salesman problem. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a directed graph problem and you work with Git all day long and like, oh, I understand how you, you traverse a graph. Like, this is easy. Speaking of that, Carrie, as a longtime uh, software engineer, do you do anything? Do you have any software, any kind of like tools that you develop for keeping track of all this? Yeah, I do a lot with spreadsheets, believe it or not. The tooling, it's tricky because at the end of the day, you're still, um, you still have to ride the motorcycle and you can't really automate that. Um, and so a lot of the, the stuff I'm able to do with software is really around using software for planning and analysis. For example, um, there's a number of different databases around. You asked about the collection with the lighthouses. And one of the things that I'm traveling around the country collecting this year is uh, pressed pennies. Now, a pressed penny machine, actually, I think they're really fascinating because a pressed penny machine is the only machine still in active production that interacts with the penny in any way, shape, or form. There's no vending machines. There's nothing that deals with the penny besides a counting, coin counting machine besides the penny smasher. You put in a penny in two quarters and it smashes a little design. And, and again, like I've got to go collect 100 of these from 20 states and five of them have to be on the other side of the Mississippi. It's all these weird rules. But like, how do you find them? You know, there's one at every Cracker Barrel. There's like eight at Disney, one at SeaWorld. You know, there's some obvious things like that. But it turns out there's almost 4,000 of these machines in the United States. And there's a database for these on this weird, creaky old website written in uh, ASP. Uh, it's actually an IP address. It doesn't have a domain name. 
That's legit. Dark web, dark web, just press gonna... pennies. That's amazing. <laughs> if only there was like crypto involved here, it'd be perfect. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I got to do, I got to break out some scripting the other day and like actually write a little script that went went into like kind of scrape these old web pages and then you know parse the HTML and kind of strip out. Look, here's the address for the place and like store the because you you want the name of the place and the address so you can find it. And you got to take that, like ship it over to Google API, like actually get like an actual latitude and longitude and then reformat it into the XML format that my GPS device, you know, it's this whole chain of like a Rube Goldberg machine of how to get this data into a place that I can actually use it. That's like the story of the entire internet is. And so fast forward to the end of that. And now I happen to be the maintainer for a website that like maps press penny machines across the United States based on this, you know, data that I'm scraping from somebody else's website. All because you have a DNS name. Exactly. Exactly. But this actually turned out to be like really, really crucial because a whole bunch of people in my writing community said, I really wanted to do that penny collecting hunt. And you have 12 months to do it. And I'm going to go out to the West Coast. So I like, I thought I have plenty of places to stop, but I could never find the machines. So it's like, oh, okay. So like my putting this information to a format that other people could actually easily digest. That's the value that I'm adding here. Um, and it's inspired at least a dozen people to uh, go out and start collecting smashed pennies. So I've got to be responsible for some uptick in sales on these vending machines. They should sponsor you. I love the weirdness of these machines that interact with a coin that's so bad at being currency, we just sort of toss them out to the extent that uh, I was at Disney World not too long ago, and the machines have their own supply of pennies because people just don't have pennies. So like this machine just has a stock of pennies and you can swipe a credit card and be like, give me the smashed pennies. And it charges you, you know, a dollar and one cent and then goes through and does it. God, it's fabulous. I mean, like I'm, I'm, a lot of people have heard this, you know, the story that like pennies are actually, it costs more to make a penny than a penny is actually worth in terms of currency. It's wild. But like every time I start like thinking like we should get rid of the penny, I'm like, that sounds like the craziest, insane, like, conspiracy theory position to ever take but also the penny's real bad at being currency yeah yeah and now a quick word from our sponsor i hear people say the vpns have a reputation for slowing down your internet speed but not with nordvpn because it's the fastest vpn in the world i don't have to sacrifice internet speed for better security With NordVPN, my internet traffic is routed through a secure encrypted tunnel, which protects my data and privacy. I can also have it on up to six devices, like my laptop, phone, TV, iPad. All my devices are protected. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash GTC or use the code GTC to get a huge discount on your NordVPN plan, plus one additional month for free, plus a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Way back at the beginning of this conversation, um, somebody asked me, and I, I'm sorry, I forgot who, asked me about like some places, some of the best places I've been or the strangest things I've seen. Um, and I kind of got derailed on some, some poetic nonsense. But I realized that like I really am a sucker for like world's largest ball of twine kinds of things. 
And I had this great opportunity. I mean, so I'm collecting, I'm collecting pennies and lighthouses and national parks. And I'm always just getting off the main roads and things. I see a lot of stuff. So I've, I found out that I'm a sucker basically for um, weird local foods, like the fire meat ice cream. Anytime I see something advertised on a menu that I've never heard of before, like that's the thing I'm going to order. Cinnamon rolls, because uh, when you travel up the Alaskan highway from uh, uh, Dawson Creek, BC, up to uh, Alaska, every 60 miles or so, there's a gas station and a little bakery. So you can get you can get your gas, and you get coffee, and you get a cinnamon roll. And they all claim to have the best cinnamon rolls on the Alaskan highway. So I stop every 60 miles and get a cinnamon roll. So after about like five hours, I really just want to fall over and vomit because I'm, I'm sick of cinnamon rolls. But now when I travel... When if I see some place advertising cinnamon rolls, I'm like, well, I got to stop because that's my thing because I like cinnamon rolls because that reminds me of Alaska. So I get to go to like a lot of these like really great small towns and just seeing a lot of how, um, especially in the center part of the country, um, so many towns are struggling with just having jobs for people and keeping local economies going that a lot of them will do these sorts of things. Like they'll have interesting, strange festivals or hold like, the film festival about corn or soy, or um, you know, they'll paint their water tower or something. Earlier this year, last year, um, as I was traveling across North Dakota one time, um, I saw off on the horizon on a hill. First of all, yes, a hill in North Dakota, so that was notable. A giant cow, a giant Holstein cow, like this hundred foot tall fiberglass cow. And so, uh, my I said to my riding partner, I'm like we're going to the cow, right? And she's like, yeah, we're going to the cow. And so like, get off the highway. And we rode up this like little windy dirt road at the top of this hill. And yeah, and it was this, this huge giant fiberglass cow that they put on top of the hill like 20 or 30 years ago. And now it's like the 4-H club or the FFA kids, uh, you know, take care of it and repaint it every few years. And they collect, you know, like they ask for donations. So, you know, we put five, you know, $5 each in the little, in the little tube. Cause you know, like we're passing through and that's part of our job. You know, that's how we're, I'm interacting with the community and, and getting, you know, save it. And plus like, man, I got a ton of pictures of this giant cow. Um, and it was right at sunset. We're on this hill and it was actually really beautiful. The, the prairie was spread out before us and it was um, about an hour east of Theodore Roosevelt National Park. So it's right where uh, the plains start to break up into the, what's called the Missouri breaks. Where the, the rivers have really broken up the land quite a bit, uh, so it was just it was just gorgeous. It was just absolutely beautiful, and I never would have seen that if I didn't stop because there was a giant cow. That's my giant cow story. Um, Carrie, have you ever considered like writing down your stories and the stories of the people that you meet along the way and the amazing places you've been? Like, I hate to say the B word, but it would make a pretty interesting book. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll throw back another B word at you, which is blog. Um, I keep a, I keep a travel blog, at motorzor.com. So lately I've been writing more, uh, about, because I haven't been doing as much non-directed travel. So a lot of my travel lately has been around these sort of competitive rallies that I've been riding in, which are interesting in themselves because, you know, they're, they're like, go take your photo with the giant cow or go to the clown motel in Tonopa, Nevada or, or whatnot and take a photo there. I've been writing quite a bit about those sorts of travels. But um, I also have a huge black backlog of uh, articles that I've written for that over the years of all the different trips I've taken uh, to New Zealand, Alaska, down into Baja, and the multiple times I've been across the country. The one that I'm working on that I haven't finished yet because I'm trying a new thing, which is incorporating um, a series of interview, video interviews with uh, my writing partner, is um, 
trying to to tell the story in written form of the trip that she and I did last summer, where we rode to all 48 states in 10 days, uh, starting in New England and ending in Washington. Carrie, I have an important question to ask you that I'm contractually obligated to ask you. How many miles at a time would you say that you live your life? <laughs> well, I guess I'm supposed to say one quarter mile at a time. <laughs> Well, Carrie was also a guest on my Greater Than Code spinoff, Fast and Furious show, Stationary and Sassy. So, which I love. I had to. I had to do. I had to pull it back. <laughs> I'll answer that. I'll answer that in an obliviously serious way. Um, <laughs> I can go um, an entire tank of gas without putting my foot down. Like that's kind of fun. Uh, one of my one of my current challenges right now is to can I ride through the entire state of Oregon, north to south, without getting gas? Because it's 304 miles from the, the Washington-Oregon border to the California-Oregon border. And uh, Oregon uh, doesn't let you pump your own gas. And I'm just it, it irritates me. They usually, like, if they see you're on a motorcycle, they're like, you got it? I'm like, yeah, I got it. I'm not from here. I'm not pump gas. But uh, so, yeah, so the challenge right now is can I, can I, can I cross Oregon without, without having to stop for gas? And it kind of like actually weirdly mentally breaks up my day. It's kind of like this weird motorcycle Pomodoro of like, okay, I can go, <laughs> I can go three hours before I need to like, I need to stop. And so like my day gets broken up into these chunks of where are the stops that I have to make versus the ones I want to make, or excuse me, the ones I want to make versus the ones I have to make. You heard it here, folks. Carrie lives her life 304 miles at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I live my life a quarter tank at a time. <laughs> Carrie, you mentioned earlier that you listen to music while you're riding because you find that it helps you focus on riding. I find a similar thing with work, whether it's full-time job work or like side work. I have a much easier time focusing for the audience. I'm a programmer as well. If I've got something on, like I like to listen to Bossa Nova or... I also go on turntable.fm. I'm in a heavy metal room there. It's kind of fun. I'm curious as to whether you find that music helps you focus anywhere off the motorcycle as well. Yes. I am very susceptible to the emotional resonance of music, if that makes any sense whatsoever. There's, there's kinds of music that I just can't listen to before I go to bed. Like heavy metal gets me going. Jam music. Like uh, I, I mean, I'm a really big fish, huge fish fan, which, you know, Surprise. Uh, from Vermont, and I wear a lot of tie-dye. Of course, I'm into fish. But those, that's the music I like to listen to when I'm, when I'm riding and when I'm working. But uh, I listen to a lot, of, a lot of chill hop stuff now. I've gotten into that. And I'm finding my way back to um, a lot of, again, like country music, but like there's this entire like alt-Nashville scene that's happened in the last 10 years that I completely missed that I'm kind of getting caught up on these days. And my Bandcamp catalog is, I think I'm keeping like at least three of their engineers paid for uh, by so much stuff on Bandcamp these days. I definitely, uh, what you said about like uh, sensitivity to the emotion of music definitely resonates with me as a musician. It's kind of weird to admit, but uh, when I'm doing writing, I listen to Steely Dan <laughs> and actually learned from a friend of mine that uh, William Gibson listened to Steely Dan while he was writing like all the seminal cyberpunk uh, novels. Oh. And like, uh -huh. uh, yeah, but that's kind of interesting. I'm in good company, right? Hey, Kagan and Becker. I mean, like, great albums. It's kind of a stereotypical thing that, like, you know, like Rush is this big, 
band in programming circles. And uh, fun fact, uh, drummer uh, for Rush was a huge motorcycle guy to the point that um, they actually had um, a trailer on their tour bus that he would carry uh, two bikes on the, the trailer. And so he would ride between concert stops. So they, you know, they, they, the band would do their show and like they, they'd leave on the bus and he got on his motorcycle and like, see in Chicago guys, you know, and see in Milwaukee, see in Madison, as you know, they, the, the band went along and uh, he, he had some personal tragedy uh, and his, uh, his wife passed away and his daughter fairly tragically. And uh, he wrote an entire book about it where like he, he didn't really quit the band, although they basically shut Rush down for a lot of, uh, extended period of time so that, you know, he could work through through that. But he took that time and went on the road, uh, just riding his motorcycle around. And he wrote several books about just dealing with grief through riding his motorcycle. Um, and I found that to be like a, fa- a really fascinating book. And it's sort of like a one of those touchstone, like, you know, uh, the, the, the canon of motorcycle riders. Uh, what little we read, that is definitely a book that everyone everyone recommends to me at some point. It's like, oh, have you read this book? And I'm like, yeah, yes, I read that book. It's Neil Pert for anyone who needs to look that up. I, I relate to the music as a distraction preventative <laughs> as someone who also deals with ADHD. Like it just, it just makes sense to me. It's like, Oh yeah, well without it, there's so many places for my brain to go. But if you have music on in the background, it's like, Oh great. All right. That's where my brain's going to go when it gets distracted. It's just going to listen to this. And then I'll go back to riding the bike. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Carrie, you said, you said a word earlier when you were contrasting um, the way you like were writing when you started out and being kind of like exploratory versus I think the word you use is like mm-hmm. directive. Is there like a sweet spot for you between like a uh, directed activity, directed writing versus like um, wandering, maybe even drifting, but not a, uh, not a, a car movie reference, but is there a balance that, that like uh, rejuvenates you or that energizes you? Yes. It, it's, I, I've talked to other people, other motorcycle writers about this where, you say, my gosh, like, there's so many great things that we see, we see along the way. And we say, I would love to stop here. So for example, when we're doing these like rallies where we're collecting things, for example, you stop to take a picture of something and then you got to go. Like you only really stop for like five minutes because you have this like this timetable and a schedule that you're trying to, to execute. Or if you're trying to ride 1500 miles in 24 hours, like you can't stop. Like your gas stops, you know, your time down to like, oh, five minutes, you know. So you'll see things, you'll think, man, I wish I could stop, or I wish I could come back here and take this in and give something the respect that you want to give it, or, you know, really, really, you know, dive deep and, and taste a place, if you will. So that's, it's a really common thing in, in, in the long distance thing. People will, uh, other motorcyclists kind of like, will sometimes say like, well, you know, you don't see anything that way. It's like, well, actually, I see a lot. I see a way lot more in my day than, than you see, but you, you don't get to stop. And so you, you have to kind of try and balance that. So that's one thing that I really like about these sort of like collection things that I do is, you know, collection challenges. The, um, I carry a satellite tracker, uh, of course. And so I can plot out everywhere that I've been. And I've been looking at the one for my, my lighthouse trip so far up and down the West Coast. And um, it's this amazing, I'm going out to like every little inlet and point and a uh, little peninsula that sticks out into the ocean because that's where the lighthouses are. And um, the things that I've gotten to see through doing that so one of the reasons I've gotten into those sort of challenges rather than the pure endurance is just because it does sort of like reward that exploration while at the same time being fairly directed because the directed part of it is researching and planning at home, like finding where are the lighthouses, where are the national parks that I need to go visit, um, what are hours are things open. So making that plan versus executing on the plan and the execution of the plan 
getting to explore things. I think it's really like a lot about the framing of the trip for me. So uh, in February, I'm, head, I'm, I'm going down to San Diego, and then uh, I'm going to attempt what's called a 50cc, which is uh, coast to coast in 50 hours. So I'll be leaving San Diego, and f- within 50 hours, I'm going to be in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. Ah, you know, somehow I'll do that. I'm not going to be able to stop and see anything along the way. But because I know that's the kind of ride that I'm embarking on, it becomes okay. Like it's this, this weird personal permission structure to give a pass to things that I would really like to see along the way. Versus, say, if, I, if I'm doing a lighthouse trip, uh, I did one uh, several months ago down to um, down to Disneyland, uh, but I went down the, the California coast, and I found myself like, oh, I'm not making any miles. Like, this is so slow. Why is it taking me three days to get down to Los Angeles when it normally takes me like one and a half at most? And so I kind of had to stop, and I ended up stopping in this little tiny town. Uh, I can't even remember the name of the place, but it's uh, it's in somewhere in, Cal- in northern coast California. There's a little tiny coffee shop there. It's written, it's like two girls coffee or something like that. I just stopped and I like I, I got a coffee and I sat outside. They had a table. It was a nice day, and I just like I'm just gonna sit here for 30 minutes and I'm just gonna like recenter myself and really like think about like what am I doing here? Like what 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 do I want to be accomplishing? And what set of skills do I need to bring to this this moment to to maximize how much fun I'm going to have. If I'm not having fun, then why am I doing it? So just being able to sit there in the sunshine for a little bit and just sort of say, the point of what I'm doing here is to explore and it is to, to sort of have this experience. It's not to get someplace fast. It's not to get someplace far away. It's to, uh, to explore and, and see things. And I was so much happier after that. And then I had this great conversation with a hippie in the parking lot. So, you know, that was, that was pretty great bonus. <laughs> well, we usually end this conversation with reflections. I know for me, I just want to say that everything you described just makes me feel so happy. And I've been on a really big journey to improve my life. And just what you said in that the last few minutes about just taking time to enjoy and, you know, not being in a hurry and slowing down and recentering yourself like that is all just so important to remember the whole cliche of stopping and smelling the roses like just enjoying your life even if it's a quarter tank at a time i keep thinking about this map that carrie says that she has which i actually legitimately would really like to see but like a lot of what Carrie was talking about was like resonating with me. Like I also like to explore. I think about like keeping track of places, but like I don't have a map and I've been thinking about it for a while. And I think it's one of these sunk cost things where I'm like, well, if I wanted to do a map, I should have been like doing it already. But that's not how that works in real life. So if I want to have a map, I should start it now. And I think that's my call to action. <laughs> like people ask my advice. I'm like, oh, what motorcycle should I get? Or, or, or what's the best motorcycle to do this or that? And we always say like, oh, well, the best motorcycle to ride, to do the ride you want to do is the one you have. And I think that's, that's, that's really true of so many things in life is that, that the trick is just to get started. And it's not about the fancy equipment. It's not about the gear. You can just do it. If you just give yourself permission to go do a thing, you can, you can just go do it. I was thinking about how that, uh, how that, that kind of philosophy relates to um, how um, my life circumstances, job situation has changed so much for the past year since I retired from software engineering and kind of the relief of like not having to be productive, not having to hit a goal, 
not having to, you know, have constraints that I'm not in control of kind of governing things and uh, permission to go down rabbit holes. So when you were talking about like the giant cow, you know, I was, I was liking that too. Well, if you were in a hurry to get somewhere, you wouldn't have stopped there. But because you weren't, you had a richer experience. You you saw something you hadn't seen before, you hadn't uh, experienced before. And I really think that's a lesson we can take all over the place and, uh, you know, give ourselves permission, like you said, to wander aimlessly and to explore. That's something that uh, I've definitely been trying to do in my life. And your story of doing that is very inspirational. So thank you. I was just uh, latching onto two bits that I really liked. First off, if I'm not having fun, then why am I doing this is probably like life lessons to live by. <laughs> but I also appreciated the moment of like resetting your expectations to your purpose, right? Like, why am I doing this thing? Let me remember, because I had a reason I'm doing it. And if I'm not enjoying it right now, where's the mismatch? I like that, right? Because so often it's easy for me anyway, to stumble into doing something and finding yourself like, why am I doing this? And then stepping back and be like, okay, right. All right. I chose to do this because of this. And if this is my purpose, then I can let go of this other pressure that I'm putting on myself to go further every day when that's not the reason I'm here, right? Like it doesn't make sense to put that pressure on myself then. I feel like that chain, that that returning to the beginning point is also like a good career skill. I mean, you have to get serious about it, you know, or like bring this into to the work realm. But yeah, like as a senior engineer and a staff engineer and principal, blah, 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 it's so often like, it's not like, how efficient can I make this loop? It's also, it's like going back, like, is this the right thing to do? Like, why are we doing this? You know, is there, is there a better way to, to, to solve this sort of problem? And so it's, it's that lesson of what I learned on the road coming back into work, but it's also like, because work is life as well, you know? And if, if work isn't fun or isn't fulfilling, whatever, like, why am I doing it? But that skill comes back into, into my personal life. And so there's just this, like, free flow of, of influence going back and forth. Yeah, that purpose revisit thing is something that uh, I've just been thinking about from uh, events standpoint, from doing, like, conferences over the past couple of years. Like, so much had to go back to first principles because it was like, okay, well, what was the reason for us doing this? Just recreating the same motion in a different environment isn't necessarily going to get us the same results. Like what is the reason we're doing this? Let's revisit it and make sure we're still in alignment with it all. Um, I think we can do that more often in our lives too, right? Like what is the reason I'm doing this thing? Okay. It's not accomplishing that anymore. Let's get rid of this practice and try something else or not. Maybe the answer is keep it. Yeah. One of the things that I think about apropos of what a couple of other folks were mentioning about how easy it is to get caught up in the details when trying to start something as opposed to just picking literally anything and getting started. Occasionally, folks will ask me questions like that about blogging. And one of the things that I like to do is keep some URLs on handy of some on hand of some of my earlier pieces, just because it makes it really clear that it didn't always look like this. I just sort of started and it wasn't it wasn't what people see. I think folks sometimes see someone who's several years down the road of having started something and feeling like they can't start because it won't look like that immediately. And it won't. Um, but I imagine that having those kinds of stories on hand, what I'm thinking about is how to make those sorts of stories more accessible to folks. Because a lot of what we see, understandably, about how to do something is from the folks who have mastered it to some degree. And it's not as clear where to look to find uh, folks who also are just starting and what to expect your journey to look like right at the beginning. Carrie, do you want to leave us with any parting thoughts? A lot of people, uh, when I tell them, like, I wrote a thousand miles in a day, 
they're like, you can't do that. It's like, I've done it 12 times. Like, what are you talking about? But to kind of like carry on to yes and on Chelsea, what Chelsea just said, um, it's the marathon. You know, it's you can't do a lot of big things in a single step. You know, you have to make that first step and then the second step and then the third step. And then you're walking and you're doing the thing. I don't really talk about motorcycling um, with people who don't motorcycle. And everybody who I motorcycle would talk about this. Like, we all do it. And so it's, it's not remarkable. And so sometimes I think it's, it's important to kind of realize that what we do accomplish in our lives is fairly remarkable and magic to a lot of people. Um, as software engineers, what we do is, you know, frankly, astounding some days. And it's important to remember that we have traveled far from where we began uh, when we first started doing this sort of stuff. And we may return to that when we change careers or jobs or languages or technologies. Um, you know, we'll, we'll return to that place of not knowing. And that can be uncomfortable, but there is so much joy and discovery you can have if you just take that time and sort of stop and understand and, and pay attention to your story of where you started and where you're going and how far along you've actually come can't look up the mountain and be intimidated by that, you should turn around and look back down the mountain to see how far you've come. That was lovely. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming back on the show and telling us yet another few stories. The first time you were on the show, I distinctly remember the title being Storytime with Carrie Miller. And you never disappoint. I'm so glad that you took time to join us and talk about your motorcycling adventures with us non-motorcycling people. It is super fascinating and it's definitely an awesome topic outside of, you know, that we can relate a lot of the concepts to the tech field and software engineering and development and all that. So dear listener, if you have a cool hobby like Carrie that you want to come on the show and talk about. We'd love to talk to you because this has frankly been amazing and I've really enjoyed this episode. So thank you again and we'll see you all next week.